By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and I'm joined by... Adam from Adamium Golf. So I feel like we got to start each episode with a little banter first. I was on the Chasing Scratch podcast the other night. Copying me, just following me. Yeah. How was that? It was fun. They're good guys. I met them in person. They're real good guys. Guys, if you haven't followed their podcast, go and do so. It's very different content to ours. It's much more about playing golf and two average guys struggles to learn the game and so it's plenty of relatable content even for john and myself because we were average golfers once right i guess so but yeah i'm sure plenty of people listening to this already listen to chasing scratch but i think it's a good companion podcast ours because it's kind of like the light side and fun side of struggling as a golfer and the quest to become better but yeah i had a good time with those guys i think i helped them out we spoke about you we talked about various impact laws and stuff like that. So we're thinking the episode will hopefully be out at the end of May. We were talking about podcasts earlier. I get so many people email me saying, oh, I first heard about you on the Chasing Scratch podcast. I'm like, these guys have got a killer following. They do. So if you haven't listened to them, give it a listen and you'll hear me on there in the not too distant future. This week, I'm going to let you tee this episode up. What are we doing? We're talking all things consistency the number one thing that i get on the lesson tee i want to be more consistent so we're going to be trying to define what does it mean does it exist how to become more consistent and reasons for inconsistency as well so it's going to be an eight hour podcast so buckle up (laughs) doesn't like joe rogan do like four hour podcasts hey man we could do that on this definitely well we might have to break this up into parts i mean my view on consistency is 
we get caught up in words a lot in golf and what they mean to different people. I think consistency is probably the most misused, misunderstood term that's out there. I've tried to take a stab at it in certain articles. I mean, it's a big concept and hopefully we could get a little context around consistency in different topics and give our listeners some good information that'll change their expectations, hopefully make them more healthy. But yeah, we're going to probably break this down into a few different categories. But to me, consistency is like, I see a lot of consistency on the golf course. I'll give an example. (laughs) When people say they're not consistent, this comes to mind. I was playing golf with a guy last year and I just pay attention to what people are doing on the course. And he wasn't a very good putter. He was leaving a lot of putts short, long. He couldn't control his speed. But what I noticed was he was making contact with like the bottom 16th of the putter face every time. Like if you were to draw a little X of where he was making contact, it was incredibly consistent. I was actually blown away at how how consistent his delivery of the putter was. The problem was it was in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So when people say they want to be more consistent, like yet a lot of people are consistent. It's just not functional. That's where I get hung up a lot on it. Yeah, that's where I try and separate it into, is it a pattern issue or mechanical consistency or is it a genuine consistency issue? I call that a biological consistency. So what you're describing is the player was actually biologically consistent. You know, the movement they were doing was producing a very consistent outcome. It was just a poor outcome. It was something that was technically inconsistent. So that could be healing the shot every single time, for example. So I, I posted something the other day about shankers, right? What a shanker thinks they do is hit center, 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 random shank. But what a shanker actually does in 95% of cases is every single shot is from the heel. And that shank, the disaster one, has just nudged a couple of millimeters more towards the heel. So they feel, because the outcomes are so different, they feel like they're doing something wildly different. Whereas in fact, they are doing things very consistently. It's just very poor. The pattern is poor. The average is in an incorrect place. It could be the same with a slicer, right? They hit straight, 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 and then slice. But you look at their stats and they never miss the left side of the fairway. So you could say to that player, well, actually, you are pretty consistent. You just got an awful strategy. If you started to aim more down the left side of the fairway, you'd get a hell of a lot more shots in the fairway because most of those shots that finish right would now finish on the right edge of the fairway instead of the rough. All makes perfect sense to me. But where do you want to start with this? What category of consistency or inconsistency would you like to tackle first? Because you're leading the charge here. Well, here's four types of consistency. There's consistency of score. Are you shooting 70 one day and 100 the next, which would be really inconsistent? Or are you 70 to 80? And we'll talk about that. I'll let you talk about that. We've got consistency of outcome. So if two players are hitting on the range, one player might have a tighter dispersion. That could technically be more consistent. We've got consistency of movement. So as you were seeing with your player, right, he was very consistent with movement. He was hitting the bottom part of the putter every single time. So what his movement was doing was incredibly repeatable. And then we have consistency in terms of technical. So that player who's hitting the heel every time, they are basically dancing with the devil. Is that the right phrase? Because, you know, if they have a little bit of movement fluctuation, they're going to get a disaster. Whereas someone whose average is in the sweet spot, 
they can have much more movement variance before they see a bad shot come out. So what about consistency of score, John? What are your views on that? So I think this was, I referred to, (laughs) when I was on the Chasing Scratch podcast, I referred to my golf life as three acts. The first act was my junior golfing days, which I was, I was a decent player, not an outstanding player, but I was pretty good. And then act two, which I'd like to refer to on the score outcome was my psychopath years. So these were the years where I didn't play much, but I went on the course thinking that, you know, I could still shoot in the low to mid seventies. And when it became clear, I wasn't going to shoot that score, I would lose my mind. And what I didn't understand at that time was I wasn't wrapping my head around what's a reasonable outcome in terms of your scoring consistency. And I would say for even pro golfers, it could be as much as 15 to 20 strokes between their best and worst rounds. And I don't know if you agree with this, but I think as handicap gets higher, I would expect a larger dispersion in absolute scores, meaning like, you know, some people's best round could be an 83 and their worst round could be, you know, 110, something like that. So I'm glad we're tackling this first because that's the part of the game that can affect a lot of things. If you don't have reasonable scoring expectations, it could affect your strategy. You could become a little too aggressive trying to make up for a score like I was, like I wanted to shoot that 75. So I played aggressive and what it really did was make me shoot a 90 instead of an 85 or an 83. So if you don't have a realistic understanding of what scoring consistency really is, it can ruin your enjoyment of the game. And more importantly, it'll make you make poorer decisions and score even higher. So that's my view on score. Like if we're talking about my game, I think last year, my best round was a 65. That was on a par 70. So that's five under. And my worst round, I'm pretty sure in a tournament, I shot an 83. I made a quadruple bogey on the 17th hole. How about that? Nice. Yeah. And it was a round where I was like grinding and playing well. It was kind of tough conditions. And then all of a sudden on the 17th hole, I hit one bad shot and it just triggered this train wreck. But it happens. It's just what it was. But I think I shot an 83 that day. So for last year, what is that? An 18 stroke dispersion from best to worst? That's pretty normal. I mean, even the top pros, you can see 15 shots difference. I did an article once where I looked at some guys and Mr. Consistency, Jim Furyk, I think had a 15 shot swing from one day to the next. Yeah, McElroy had a 20 shot swing from one week to the next. I think he shot a 62 one week and then very next week he shot an 82. So these are the best players in the world. I think McElroy was close to number one in the world at the point and he had a 20 shot swing from one week to the next. So when an amateur tells me, oh, I had 40 points the other day and then I had 29 yesterday, I'm inconsistent. I'm like, that's an 11 shot swing. That is not really inconsistency. And I understand where they're coming from as an amateur golfer. Can you stop for a second? Are you talking about Stableford points? What, oh, yeah, yeah. There? Do you guys not play Stableford points? No, that's you? so European. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know we have a lot of listeners. I've actually looked. We have a ton of listeners in the UK and Australia. Sorry, but like, I love Stableford. I'd love to play more of it, but Americans don't think in Stableford. So oh, I just wanted to clarify have- that. You can have a blow-up round and it doesn't kill your score. So it's, Oh, it's an awesome format. Yeah. But yeah, to have an 11-shot swing from one week to the next, that's not a bad thing at all. I mean, at the elite level, you don't really want to be consistent. Because if a tour pro was shooting 70 every single time they went out, or say 71 every single time they went out, they're probably not going to have an awesome career. Whereas if a player was able to shoot 62 
a few times in the year, but they had a lot of times that they also shoot 82. They're going to miss more cuts, but they're also going to have one or two weeks a year where they win a tournament and they're going to keep their card as a result of that. Well, I think when you look at Tiger's career, I think what he was really good at was that he never had a lot of those blistering rounds, those 62s, because I don't think he took enough risk to shoot those. But what he was really good at was making sure that you know he made birdies where he was supposed to on the par fives and then not doing damage on the par threes and par fours. So he would pile up the 67s, the 68s, and he would just outlast the field. Obviously, we're talking about one of the two best golfers of all time, but you know, that was like a different type of consistency where it was like he wasn't bludgeoning people to death with the super low rounds, but it was just waiting them out by shooting a few under par each time where everyone else was blowing up trying to chase him. But yeah, I mean, in terms of thinking about the average golfer, so more of like that, let's say 12, 15, 17 handicap, it's not uncommon for you to go out there and shoot an 80 one day and then 100 the next day. Now, I'd love, I think when you get better, you're tightening the bell curve, so to speak. So you have more scores fall in a tighter window. Like, so for me, when I got better at golf, like most of my rounds are probably in the low to mid 70s. I'm not having a lot of 78s, 79s anymore, but they happen. And then I'll maybe a few times a year, I'll shoot in the low 80s, probably in a tournament. That's my best and worst, but my average rounds have been in a tighter window. I haven't. <laughs> well, you don't play golf, so how can we even know what you're shooting? No, this is interesting. Flip side of that is that, okay, I was frustratingly consistent as an amateur, and I'll tell you why. I had the ability, technically shot-wise, to shoot a lot under par. But because I'm so screwed up in my head, or I was as a kid, <laughs> right? whenever I got the three under par, I think unconsciously I thought, ooh, this is there for pros, not for me. I'm a handicapped golfer. I mean, those words didn't run in my head, run through my head. The turtle went back into the shell. Yeah, it's this Tony Robbins kind of internal thermostat, right? So you set your own level of what you feel comfortable with. And it's based on lots of things. But I felt comfortable maybe around zero to three over par as an amateur golfer, right? So whenever I got to, say, five over par, I would find a new gear. And I would bring that back down because I'm like, I don't deserve to be here. I'm too good for five over par. But when I got the three under par, there was a lot of nerves came up. And even though I was good enough technically to be there, it almost felt like I didn't deserve to be there because I wasn't a pro. And so I would almost self-sabotage. And it would be so many times where I'd come in the last three holes and just ruin my round. And what changed for me, so let me preface that. As an amateur, I would have no more than an eight-shot swing which is really consistent, you know, maybe actually say five shot swing, zero par, a level par to five over. What happened was one day as a pro, I went out and I shot eight under par for nine holes. And it was a complete fluke. I was with a bunch of guys who were complete beginners. And so I was just saying, this is where you aim. This is a shot. And they just thought that was normal. I was literally holding every putt, but I was knocking it to five feet as well. But the moral of the story there is I shot one round of eight under par for nine holes. We walked off after that. And that changed something in my belief system that said, I've done that now. And I didn't feel nervous anymore. So now when I get three under par, four under par, five under par, it doesn't create the same reaction in me internally. So actually, I'm able to go deeper than that. When I get to three under, I'm able to say, right, let's get to four, let's get to five. Whereas before when I got a three under, I was like, let's get in the clubhouse as soon as possible so I don't ruin this score. 
I don't know if you ever felt that before. No, I think what you're referring to is I kind of view it as I would call it climbing the ladder. So in my own game, as I was getting back into playing golf a lot, that number for me was shooting in the 70s. So I ran up against a wall at the end of the round where maybe I was like four or five over. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm going to shoot a 75, 76. And then all of a sudden mistakes would start piling up because I felt the pressure the last three holes. The score was like burning in the back of my head. And eventually after you know the mistakes and the disasters, there were rounds where I did do it and then that felt comfortable. And then I moved to the next level, which was, you know, getting lower into the seventies where I'm at probably at the point you're talking about now, like last year, I think I shot five under and four under in the same week. And I'm not a golfer that goes really deep. I never made enough birdies, but I'm starting to feel more comfortable with that. And again, I don't want me and Adam to keep talking about our under par scores and I'm legitimately not trying to brag to you all, but this is relative to, every scoring level, whether it's breaking 100, 90, 80, there's kind of this process you have to go through. You can call it climbing the ladder, but you have to like be there, maybe fail. The turtle goes back into its shell a bit, keep putting yourself in that situation. And then hopefully you start feeling more comfortable. And it's part of the reason why I often tell people, if you want to become a better golfer, you have to be playing a decent amount of golf. Because you have to go through these things on the course and feel uncomfortable enough so that you break through and then all of a sudden it feels comfortable. Well, that's it. The first time you break through is really difficult. So it's almost like yes. two stages of breaking through these barriers, 90, 80 or 70 or par or whatever. The first stage is you get technically good enough to do that. But the second stage is you've got to get mentally good enough to break that barrier because people, they will, if the first time they're breaking 80 they'll get into a position where they're like, I'm going to break 80 here. And then they'll often find, I would say 90, 80% of cases that they blow up on the last few holes, right? That's probably a mental error. That's probably they don't feel comfortable being there. And that creates nerves, that creates a different mindset. They start to become aware of different things as well. They start to, like me, try to get in the clubhouse as quick as possible so they don't ruin the score and they end up ruining it. But the theme of what I was talking about earlier was I actually became less consistent with my scores, but it was better for me because my average score went down. My average score went from over par to under par, but my consistency went from instead of zero to five over, it went from six under to six over. So even my upper end went up a little bit because the reason why is that I don't play as much anymore. So my worst rounds are probably worse, but my lower rounds are better because I feel like I can do that. We're often locked into consistency mentally. And I think consistency is not always good, and even in terms of score. It is, but I think no matter what, whether you're the golfer that has the wider bell curve or the tighter one that we're moving away from, the more extremes in the low end and high end, no matter what, you have to be prepared to accept either version of it. And the one that I want people to focus more on, I think, is on the days that it's not going so well. Those are the ones where people have a tendency to focus less and give up a little more easily, kind of referring back to our episode on grit. So I think one of the hallmarks of a golfer who's better is one that can take, let's say their bad round was going to be an 88 and turn that into an 84. That to me is one of the things you're going to have to do. In addition to lowering your low scores, those are the fun ones. You know, you want to turn the 76 into a 72 as well but they got to shift together. That's how you lower your handicap. But no matter what, 
when you talk about consistency, there is going to be this reasonable gap between the high and low score. I'd say 15 shot swing is perfectly normal across the course of a season. Yeah, absolutely. Day to day as well. Yeah. I mean, there were days I mentioned those rounds where I played really well last year. I shot the five and the four under. I'm like, oh, here I go. I'm going to get hot. And then I kind of struggled for six weeks where a lot of my rounds were like I was struggling to shoot like a 76 or a 77. So same golfer, different week, just didn't have it. I suppose a lot of that can be expectation management yeah, as well. It could when have you been. have a couple yeah. of good rounds, you may unconsciously or consciously adjust your strategy and become slightly more aggressive. And I think too, if you want score consistency, grit, so grinding through your bad rounds and strategy are going to give you the score consistency. And that's probably the golfer that I am. I think that's why I have such a tight range of scores because I don't have those. Like yesterday I played, I think I had six birdies yesterday and I was one under. I don't know why, but I just had a few holes where I made a couple of errors. You know, I hit an iron too long and pulled it, went in the bunker, made a lot of nice birdie putts, but I also had a lot of bogeys too. So that was just a round where, you know, I shot one under. I was very happy with it, but it was kind of one of those roller coaster ride rounds where it was like a wide range of results. But I didn't get upset or too happy with either result. I think that's the kind of the golfer I've become where I just kind of more even keeled. And that I think is, or even on the days where I'm not playing well, like last week I had a rough round and I think I turned it into a 74, but I didn't have, my swing felt really out of whack. I didn't feel it, but I stuck with it and I probably would have turned what could have been a 78 into a 74. So I grinded it out and I take pride in that. I like doing that. That's fun for me. All right. We've done score consistency. Let's talk about outcome consistency. So this is, say you've got a bird's eye view of the range or you've got your sky track or GC quad outcomes, what would create a tighter dispersion or is that even possible? What's the dispersion circle for a tour pro or for Well, depends what club we're talking about. All right. Give me a few. What do you think? We've talked about the driver dispersion. I think for a golfer who hits it reasonably far, the 60 to 70 yard right to left dispersion comes up. That's like your best to worst shots could be that far over. If you're looking at the circle around a green, I don't know the exact numbers, but I've seen results from pro golfers on TrackMan where they're trying to hit a target with a seven iron and the circle isn't that small. It's much bigger than you think. We've kind of alluded, I think in our What's a Good Golf Shot episode, we were talking about understanding what are reasonable outcomes and dispersion windows and circles, whatever you want to call them. So no matter what, however good you get at this game, you're never going to place the golf ball where you want. You're not going to aim on one side of the fairway and keep it on the left side of the fairway every time. But there is a reasonable expectation to tighten the outcomes. And I think that's Because of a lot of things we talk about, face control, we always talk about that, and strike. I think if you control those two things really well, then your outcomes are going to be a lot tighter. They're not going to be a pinpoint on the golf course, but a much smaller circle than was there before. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, definitely. Consistency does exist. I know some people say, oh, consistency doesn't exist. Well, it does. If I hit 100 shots on the range compared to a 
a higher handicapper, I'm going to have a much tighter dispersion. So it does exist. But there's only so consistent you can get. I know a guy who owns a golf robot. His name's Gene Parente. I know Gene. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with Gene last year before the PGA show went away because of COVID. But I sat down with him for an hour. I learned a lot about his robot. It was very cool. But Well, I asked him one thing. I said, if your robot is hitting, what dispersion circle does it have? And I think he said it averages 15 foot either side at 200 yards with a driver. So even a robot averages a 30 foot circle which is a 10-yard circle with a driver. That's a robot producing the same movement every time. And the reason for that is, I mean, we have obviously wind and things like that, but the golf ball is not consistent. When you have these three-layer golf balls, the core will sink a little bit during the making of the golf ball. And so they're not perfectly balanced. And so that can create offline putts. It can create offline shots as well, even the dimples and all these different factors that we have no control over, really. Or even the shaft of the club. If you put a slight different force in it at different points in the swing, it can create different kicks. And so there are actually equipments that deal with that better. I think TPT shafts, I think, are designed to be more consistent for a given variance of forces. But we don't want to go too much down that rabbit hole. That might be another episode. Yeah, I think any premium shaft company out there, you're buying a better handmade quality controlled shaft. That's why you pay more for them. It's a dirty secret of the shaft industry. Is we have that... to wait until we get nice money off these guys before we, <laughs> we Yeah, that, that shaft is like a thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, sponsor the podcast, guys. But yeah, in terms of outcome, you're going to have a dispersion, as you said. So strategy is important there. That If I aimed at the flag every single time I play golf, I'm going to have a wider range of scores. I might have 20 shot swing between my scores. Whereas if I aimed at the center of the green or more appropriate parts on the golf course, then I'm going to have a much more consistent score, even with the same outcomes because of just how the math works behind it. So yeah, having outcome consistency and score consistency, they can be different things. That's what I look at with a player. When a player says, oh, I'm shooting high scores, I say, well, are you are your outcomes poor? But if I watch them on the range and they've got a tall level outcome, I'll say it's probably your strategy then that's poor. Let's get out on the course and have a look. I'm so glad I'm playing golf again so I can inject these anecdotal pieces into it. But I was playing yesterday with a guy who I think he's probably like a four or five handicap, pretty good ball striker. But we were on a par three on my course, about a 180-yard shot. If you miss to the right, some really tough bunkers. The pin was tucked on the right-hand side. So I stepped up, I hit my, I believe it was a seven iron. I hit it 35 feet away in the center of the green and he hit it. (laughs) He short-sided himself way over on the other side of the rough. And he does read my site from time to time. And we talked about it. He was like, oh, that was a practical golf moment. I thought I could (laughs) fade it in there and get it in the pin. And what did I do? His face was too open at impact and he put himself in a really hard situation. And long story short, I drained the birdie putt and he made a bogey. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) But that's to get to Adam's point is, is that he knew that he was playing the hero shot. And what it did bring into play is that he just shifted his dispersion over to the right more. So now he's bringing in short siding himself more often, not all the time, but sometimes Or he might have hit it on the pin a few times. But had he aimed further left where there was plenty of room on that hole, 
Now he's going to have a lot more outcomes where he's on the green and has a 20, 30, 40 foot putt. And at worst, he's going to three putt for a bogey versus introducing more of those short side misses, which you know I think would possibly bring double bogey into play and certainly less pars. Generally, if a good miss costs you at shots, then that's bad strategy. So if you miss by 10 yards, that's like tour level. If you miss by 10 yards and you're in a bunker or water, that's a bad strategy that you've played. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yep. In general, I'm sure there's some holes out there that you can't get away with it. But anyway, we've talked about score consistency. We've talked about outcome consistency. This one might be one I have to talk about a little bit, at least to get it started, movement consistency. So I suppose that relates to your anecdote earlier about the guy hitting the bottom of the putter every single time. And so I've had the divot board. I've had guys on there where my variance is I can hit maybe half an inch in front, half an inch behind the middle of that spot. Not me. Most of the <laughs> I'm time. I'm in the inches. <laughs> okay. So I would say that's pretty good consistency. But I had a guy the other day who was hitting three inches behind, but he hit the same sequin every single time. So, <laughs> so basically within a couple of millimeters every single time. So you would argue, you'd say that I'm less consistent than that player 
In terms of movement variability, my variability of movement was higher because I had a one-inch range. Whereas this player was much more consistent biologically, movement-wise, because he was hitting the same spot every single time. But that leads to the next form of consistency, which is technical consistency. So I had a better pattern. So I was able to get better outcomes. Does that make sense? Because my average was in the right area, I was getting better outcomes, even though there was a bit more variance either side of it. Yeah, this is the part of consistency that I find most interesting when you hear golfers say, oh, I want to be more consistent because I pay attention to people when they're hitting balls on the range. Like yesterday, I was warming up before my round and the head pro was giving a lesson. And I was just watching this guy hit balls. And I think they were working on like an 80-yard wedge shot because the range was closed. We have a short game facility he was working on. And I could see every single time this guy was like adding so much loft to the ball. You know, his hands are probably in a very similar position behind the ball at impact. And he was hitting these like super high wedge shots where just wasn't a functional pattern. But he was delivering the club incredibly consistently. It just wasn't the right technique, like you said. So I see this all the time where golfers have remarkably similar patterns, myself included. You know, you see me make my weird takeaway every time almost exactly the same way. So we are incredibly consistent when you think about it. For the most part, there are some players who fall into the category of genuinely inconsistent, as in they'll strike toe one shot, they'll strike heel the next, they'll hit the face open one shot and then really close the next. So there are players who will fall into that, but it's far fewer than you would think. And when a player comes to me, especially most of the players who fall into that category are juniors or beginners. Yeah, they because the they haven't had the time variable. to ingrain the motor pattern all those years, right? Exactly, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, juniors will always be less consistent, let's just say, because their bodies are still in exploration mode and they're still doing things like growing a foot every day. Unfortunately, yeah. I didn't, but Neither so did all, I. These, <laughs> all these things kind of go into the mix. But when you get a 50-year-old guy who's been playing for 10 years, I can pretty much guarantee that if his first shot is out of the heel, his next 100 shots are going to be close to the heel. So in that example, I would say, well, look, your outcomes are inconsistent, right? You hit these good shots, good shot, good shot, and then one goes 90 degrees right. So you're seeing outcome inconsistency. But I spray the face of that player and say, well, actually, what you're doing movement-wise is very consistent. It's just shitty. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? I guess. I mean, I don't want to make this a uh, potty mouth podcast because if you open that door for me, it's not going to be pleasant <laughs> for the people who don't like cursing. But I think that's one of the reasons what you're talking about is why golfers get caught. And I was caught in this pattern for a long time myself of the, oh, I went to the range and hit 300 balls and I'm still I'm still playing the worst I've ever played, mainly because they're just ingraining that same pattern over and over and over again, which is why practice doesn't necessarily make perfect. You're just making this movement that is not resulting in functional golf shots. You're just ingraining it deeper and deeper and deeper. You're living on the edge, basically. Yeah. And that's why when people say the word consistency, 
not that I know better than every golfer, but I look around and I do see a lot of consistency. I see a tremendous amount of consistency. <laughs> yeah, you might see a little inconsistency from one day to maybe a week later. So, but generally, when I stand on the first tee of an event and I see players' patterns, I know that player is going to have that pattern for the rest of the round, unless they're like you and I, where we can change those patterns consciously. So that is actually a form of how to become more consistent. But to give a more concrete example of that, something that's simple, my average face strike is on the center of the face, right? So if I move five millimeters more towards the heel or five millimeters more towards the toe, it's still a good shot. Whereas someone who is right on the heel of the club, they might hit a lot of good shots with that average. And if they move five millimeters towards the toe, it'll actually become a slightly better shot. But if they move five millimeters towards the heel, it now becomes an absolute disaster. So the same movement variance, the same biological variance in movement results in higher outcome inconsistency for that player. So that's why I'm always trying to categorize player when they come in. I'm saying, are they really inconsistent? Or, like we said, are they just doing the wrong things consistently? So, heading three inches behind consistently. And you can get away with a lot. When you say get away with stuff, all right, I'm going to insult you here, John. You're getting away with something, right? Because your angle of attack is zero, that means your low point is level with the ball. What that means for you is you need to have a much greater control of your arc depth, so the up and down movement. So, if you were to drop in, quarter of an inch deeper, you would get worse results than if I were to drop in quarter of an inch deeper. So actually, you might be higher skilled than me. You might have better hand-eye coordination, better control of the arc height. But I'm using a technique that's slightly different that makes it easier for me. And the analogy I'd use for that is imagine you were shooting a gun at a target, right? You are effectively shooting from farther away than I am. So if I move side to side a little bit, I'm going to get less outcome variance than you. And that's because your angle of attack is zero. Now you can get away with that because you practice a lot. You have really good hand-eye coordination. You're highly skilled. You can adapt to stuff. But I bet you if I put you on wet turf that's really tight and we were to hit 100 shots, I would get better outcome consistency in terms of distance control. Yeah, I'd be terrified if you put me in that scenario. I know why. Now, it's not to say change your swing because then we're battling, you know, you've ingrained that motion for for so long and you're very, very good at it. And if we actually make the technique better, it might be so new for you that it opens up more movement variants. So there's all these different factors I'm taking into account as a coach that goes probably way too deep for the podcast. But yeah, there's so many ways of looking at consistency. But like I said, these four different categories, at least, are your scores consistent? Is the outcome that you're producing with the result of the shot consistent? Is your movement that you're producing consistent? And is a technique that you're using good? Because better techniques are going to produce more consistent outcomes for the same skill level. Yeah, I like when you were talking about the starting point at impact location, when you were talking about the golfer who was starting on the heel without really knowing it. So they were getting away with heel, 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 and then all of a sudden a little bit closer to the heel and you know what happens. And, you know, when I think about my ball striking as someone who is a heel striker, when I miss, I think just shifting over the starting point, like if your starting point can get more functional, like me working on impact location, like yesterday, for example, I was on a par three and I know I healed it, but it wasn't that bad. And I still landed 12 or 13 feet away from the hole. 
Now, if my pattern was starting even more closer to the heel, I very well could have shanked that one. And I have done that in the past. I've had my struggles with that. I just think over the last five years, I've shifted that starting point closer to the center of the club face where I am flushing a certain amount of iron shots per round and drivers. But like yesterday, I know I was healing it a bit. I had a few flares with my driver that were going left to right and super spinny, probably hitting it low on the heel. And I was clanking a few on the inside of the club face, but I still scored well. well that's because your strategy is good as well. Yeah, the strategy was good, but also it wasn't that bad of a miss. You know, if I think about what changed in my game to become a better ball striker is just I moved that pattern over maybe a few more millimeters to the right on the club face. And that small change helped my consistency outcome on the course. Am I landing it next to the pin all the time? No way. I'm just keeping it in a reasonable window and combined with smarter strategy on most shots. That's how I'm keeping my scores lower. This is an overarching theme. You cannot get rid of variance, right? Every single player is going to have some variance. But what you can do is make sure that that variance is still functional. So another example of that, right? I hit on average level with the ball, right? In terms of ground contact. So it's ball first, then turf. My bad shot may be half an inch behind that or half an inch in front of that. So basically, I'm hitting between half an inch behind, half an inch in front of the ball. All of those shots are going to be consistent. Say I take that movement variance and I move it one inch farther back. Now, my average shot is an inch behind the ball, right? Okay, I'm going to lose a little bit of difference, uh, distance. It's not going to be great, but it's not going to be awful. Say I hit half an inch in front of that average spot. It's going to actually be better. But the problem is, say I hit my back end of my pattern, that's an inch and a half behind the ball. That's going to lose a lot of distance. And so, again, it's a case of I've got the same variance there, but different outcomes. I'm going to have a lot more distance dispersion. I'm going to hit a lot of shots that miss short of the green. And so the object there, as you said with your strike, instead of trying to make yourself more consistent, you shifted the average instead. So in that example, I would need to shift the average ground contact an inch farther forwards to get more consistency. So again, I'm always looking at this with players. Do they need to genuinely become more consistent or do they need a better pattern? Now, interestingly, if you want to make someone genuinely more consistent, right, as in their movement is less variable. Did you see my drill on counting where I get people to walk in and during their routine, they're counting one, two. I'm sure everybody knows what counting is. (laughs) I don't know why I did that. But what that does, what I found is it occupies the conscious mind because their brain is so focused on the act of counting that they cannot really focus on the movement. And what's interesting, what I found is that for most players, their movement becomes more consistent as a result. So someone who has a 20 millimeter face strike variance Now it becomes 15 millimeters. That doesn't always make someone better though, because if they were heel striker, they're now more consistently striking the heel. So again, it's one of those tools that I use if a player has a good pattern, but lots of variance around it, I can use kind of mental tricks like that to bring the variance in. Whereas if they have a bad pattern, if it's a heel pattern or a fat pattern, I'm probably going to be technically addressing that. That makes sense? Yes. I just kind of came up with an overarching theme as you were saying that. I wasn't spacing out like I did last week, checking the master's. I know. I thought, who's he checking this time? (laughs) No, I was listening. Here's kind of one of my big thoughts here. I think 
most golfers should aspire to being consistent with what they can control on the course. And what do I mean by that? Pre-shot routine, what you discussed, like you had a counting pre-shot routine. Like I try and do the same exact thing before every shot. That kind of triggers that unconscious, I'm just kind of going on robot mode and not thinking about things. I'm just letting them happen. I'm reacting. So I think if you get consistency in your pre-shot routine, consistency in your strategy where you have somewhat of a system saying like, okay, this is the hole. I know I'm aiming here with this club because I've addressed these variables and that's it. I'm consistent with the way I make decisions on the course. Are you consistent with your attitude? You know, we discussed grit and mental fortitude. Can you be consistent enough with sticking to going through your routine even when things are going poorly? Like, can you keep your emotions in check? And I'm not suggesting everyone needs to be have perfection with their consistency, but if I'm thinking like what people can get out of this episode and the word consistency, I think it's being consistent with what you can control. Because if you have too much variance in that, I think you're making golf probably a little bit more harder for yourself. And then the flip side of that would be to embrace the inconsistency, the things that you can't control on the course. We can't control the wind. We can't control your shot dispersion. It's always going to be there. Even the robot had a nice dispersion. So I guess it's finding that healthy mix of consistency in how you approach the game, but also understanding how much inconsistency golf just has innately. Now, that was like really deep thoughts. Why don't you react to that? I'm going to add something that might sound as if it's going against that, but it's not. I agree with, you know, trying to control what you can control. The only thing I would say is we also have to be able to adapt on the course to whatever pops up. Because I could start the round with a certain pattern of shots, and then it may change throughout the round, especially for me, where I have the ability to change patterns. And so I may need to change thought processes. So I'm always addressing the big three that we talk about in this, the ground contact, the face contact, and the face direction. I'm addressing those. And so... You know, if I'm hitting shots at the start of the round, I might find that, okay, I'm fatting everything a little bit. So I need to focus more on moving that low point forwards. But once that's fixed, once that's within good ranges, I may find that, oh, I'm striking it well now, but everything's a little out of the toe. So striking the ground well, but the face strike is a little out of the toe. I need to shift that and focus on more hitting more towards the heel. So... I think we need to adapt based on what's happening. If I'm in fault-fixing mode, or I should say calibration mode, I might be changing my focus based on what patterns are causing the biggest issues. However, in those rare events where I am firing on all cylinders, where everything feels good, I might actually be doing something like a counting routine to get my conscious mind out of it. Because in those moments where things are going well, the only thing you can do is destroy it, right? You could jump into the autopilot seat and turn the autopilot off and then you can make things worse. So you need to know when you need to be in the driver's seat and when you need to switch it on. What's Tesla's autopilot mode? It's probably called autopilot, right? Yeah, I think that's a good guess. Yeah, I think there's multiple ways to come at these concepts. Did I share the question I got with you on Twitter about consistency of like setup and position in terms uh, yeah, of like I alignment and that. stuff like that? Do we want yeah, to tackle that at all? Yeah, you go first with that. I got a few okay, thoughts. So, but yeah. so someone sent me a message on Twitter asking how important is consistency of setup, meaning like 
your alignment, ball position, and stuff like that. And my answer is, I think it's very important if you go, you see PGA Tour players on a weekly basis grinding on this stuff. Like I remember, not to always bring up Jordan Spieth as the pro golfer, but I remember a few years ago when he was really struggling with his putter. And this is, you know, one of the best putters in the world. I know he struggled from short distances. He's saying like, I'm standing over five footers and I cannot get aligned. He just is like, every time I step over him, he's like, I feel like I'm not aiming at the right spot. And my point with that is that these basic fundamental concepts are not something you should kind of skip over. They need to be addressed when you practice. And I do believe that setting up to the ball in a consistent way, whether it's ball position, how your body's aligned or having an understanding of that at least and how it affects your shot patterns. I think that's one of the falls into the bucket of what you can control. Do you agree with that? Is that something you talk about a lot with your players, like how they're aligning themselves and addressing the golf ball? There's two sides of me with this, right? There's one that agrees with that and says, yes, we want things to be pretty consistent, as consistent as possible, you know, especially for standard lies, right? You might have to adapt when ball is above your feet, ball is below your feet, things like that. But in general, relatively similar setup, ball position, or I should say as consistent as possible, even with alignment, right? I would say to people, I don't care necessarily if you're lined up perfectly towards the target. I shouldn't even use the term perfectly because it's just a man-made concept, right? But I want you to be consistent with your alignment for a given category of club. If you're hitting wedges, Hogan was always lined up left. If he was hitting his irons, mid-irons, he would always line up pretty square towards the target. And when he hit his driver and his longer clubs, he would always line up to the right. All right, So it's inconsistent alignment, but he's consistent within a category of club. Sure, yeah. That's no different than how I go from the middle of my stance to further up in my stance as the club gets longer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the thought experiment I want to give you that really leads into how and why I train like I do. If you got a tall pro, right? to vary his ball position. So you said to him, right, you've got a six iron. I want you to place the ball farther forwards in your stance and hit a shot. Place it farther back in the stance and hit a low shot. Place it middle, right? And you kept alternating between those three positions and you looked at the outcomes. Then you got an amateur, player B, to keep the exact same ball position every single time. Who would have the most consistent outcomes? The tour pro, because their skill would account for that, they would adjust. Exactly, exactly. So there's this flip side of the argument. Yes, it's probably going to be more consistent for every single player to keep consistent ball position. However, a pro also has the ability to positively adapt to different ball positions. If we're really looking at consistency, we want to attack it from two angles. We want to reduce bad variance, so in other words, make things more consistent. But we also want to increase our ability to deal with bad variance. And you only do that, you only improve your ability to deal with that by actually introducing it in your training. I see what you're saying. You're saying that you're going to have to introduce variability into your practice to increase your skill. But at the same time, there's also a moment where like, it's not like you want to change your ball position 20 different times while you practice either. There has to be some consistency there as well. There's got to be a little bit of both. Now, I'm not saying go out and make half your practice variability. I'm not saying that. Maybe at different points in the season, you might make it more so. You know, In the off-season, you might increase it to 30%. In the pre-tournament, you might reduce it to zero. You might just work on stabilizing everything. But So here's an example, a specific example of a drill that I use that I have seen. I've got quantifiable evidence 
evidence that improves people's ability to hit targets, right? Player A only practices lining up at the target, right? And they just hit every single shot with an alignment stick down, lining up the target. Player B practices aiming right of their target and trying to hit it, and then aiming slightly left of their target and trying to hit it. Player B will actually, when they both go out on the course, player B will actually improve their ability to hit a target, especially when you combine both types of practice. So they do that straight alignment and they do a little bit of variance either side of it and the reason why i'm saying this this is anecdotal for me when i practice that drill of lining up to the right and trying to hit the target my brain gets connected to the target and my body the instinct takes over and it figures out a way of doing that it figures out a way of i'm aimed to the right but how can i still get this ball onto the target or vice versa and so you need that on the course because it is absolutely impossible to be perfectly aligned every time. So you need to be able to have that brain to produce what we call positive variability. And this is actually a motor learning term. So when we're looking at consistency, there's two things, reducing negative variability and increasing positive variability. Now, people are like, what, what the hell? I understand reducing negative variability. What's increasing positive variability? Well, the analogy is if you're driving your car down the street, not down the street, you'll kill people. <laughs> if you're driving it down the freeway and it's a windy road, an alien looking down from high up in the sky might look at that car and say, oh, look at that car. It's really consistently staying within the lines. What it doesn't see is that driver is moving the steering wheel back and forth. That driver is producing positive variability. They're keeping consistently between the lines because they're introducing movements that are positive. And it's the same in the golf swing as well. You need to have the ability to increase your positive variability or you need to have positive variability. And that can come in two forms. It can be unconscious or in our case, right, the stuff that we talk about. You hit towards the heel, what do you do? You consciously move it more towards the toe. So that's a conscious form of positive variability where we're basically fixing patterns or calibrating patterns as they occur. So I know I've probably lost a lot of people there. That is quite a deep topic. I understand that. But you can't become purely consistent only, only by locking in variables, right? That is one way to consistency. But there is another way to consistency that other players don't use and I have found to be beneficial. When added, it makes players even more consistent. I think that, I mean, a lot of that makes sense to me. There are times where I will change my ball position with my driver. Like there's a hole on my course where it's blocked out on the left side by this huge tree and I choose to hit this kind of low running draw. I just move the ball to the middle of my stance with my driver. So totally different than what I normally do, but I feel comfortable doing it. I've practiced it enough and I feel like it will produce the result, which is a low hook that I want. Well, that's a little different. I, I'll, yeah, I'll I guess it's a, a little different. That's I'll true. give an analogy that goes with that. But okay, so we know on the course that we're going to have a variable ball position just accidentally, right? We are humans. Yeah, we cannot set perfect. up perfectly every time, right? So Imagine you've got a player on the course who accidentally sets up with that ball an inch too far forwards. Well, the player who's never practiced that will not be able to deal with it. They're going to fat it. But the player like me, who has practiced having the ball farther forwards and farther back, we instinctively, even unconsciously, know how to deal with that. And we can add the movements necessary 
to make that work. So it's basically, there's always going to be variability on the course with our alignment, with our ball position. So are you able to deal with it? And you've got to practice that effectively to be able to deal with it. It's got to be part of your practice at least. So I guess your answer is you got to do both. Yeah, you've got to do both. And okay, predominantly, you might practice the more stable method of practice, right? The practice makes perfect mantra. But you've also got to throw some level of variability in there so that you're able to deal with that variability when it inevitably happens on the golf course. So that soundbite there, press the 15 second reverse, re-listen to that because that little soundbite summarizes everything I just talked about. I think that's important in certainly approach player or even off the tee, but I think that that concept for me is probably most important in wedge play when you talk about variability like I in the beginning of the season where I'm at now I almost need to like go in my yard or the short game facility and start putting the ball in all different kinds of lies and seeing what type of adjustments I need to make yeah well that's another form of consistency isn't it we're just going to open up so many different cans of worms (laughs) here but no it's a good one i mean you need to be able to adapt on the golf course there's lots of different lies sometimes the ball will be above your feet sometimes below the feet in fact a thought experiment i was thinking about for this podcast was if you had a golf robot and it set up exactly the same every single time and you went out on the course and you lined it up right towards the flag every single time you would play awful And the reason why is because the wind is going to knock it offline and you've got to adapt for that. But also the lies are going to change as well. You might need to have that ball farther back in the stance for a rough lie in order to get a steeper angle of attack. Then you need to drop the arc depth in to account for that. You might have the ball above your feet slightly. So you need to line that robot up more to the right. So we've got to adapt to the environment. We've got to adapt to the lie that we have the shot type that's needed. There has to be adaptability in the golf swing as well. You know what I'm thinking about right now? We're almost at like an hour here. And this just shows you what a beginner podcaster I am. I'm like exhausted from like, you know, we're racking our brains so hard to do this. Like, how does Joe Rogan do it for like five hours? I guess that's why he makes hundreds of millions of dollars now. I could keep going. Yeah, you can keep going. I guess I'm just, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like we have to start wrapping it up for our <laughs> yeah, listeners. Yeah, no, it's We're an almost hour. At our yeah, hour. We make but hour. like, you know, we've said a lot of different things here, but they fall into four main buckets, correct? The score, outcome, movement, technical consistency or inconsistency. Yeah. Do you want to take a step back here and kind of summarize some of the main things we're hoping people learn from this episode? Yeah, so my model, if I'm going to make a player better, and more consistent. First thing I do is make their average impact functional. So in other words, if their average impact is close to the sweet spot, we're good. If their average ground contact is close to perfect, we're good. If their average contact is three inches behind, we got an issue. We need to shift that first. Then the second thing I do is make the variance around that average smaller. And I have different ways of doing that. The counting drill might be one of those. Or even locus of attention. If you're thinking about movement versus outcome, that changes the variance around that. And I talk about all that in my book and programs. Little plug there. The third thing I do is I make sure that the techniques someone is using have bigger margins for error. So in other words, our example is my low point is in front of the ball. Your low point is level with the ball. I'm using a technique that has a bigger margin for error than you, so I can get away with more. The fourth thing I do, the last thing I do, is make players use strategies 
that allow for variance of outcome. So in other words, not aiming at the pins, right? Aiming at safer spots that allow the overall dispersion circle to produce the best scores. So when I take players through those four stages, they are then able to play their best and most consistent golf while at the same time not limiting their low-end scores. Excellent. I love that. I think my main plea closing argument for this episode on consistency or inconsistency, and this is one of the, the main battles I try and fight on practical golf, is that I want people to understand what is reasonable inconsistency in the game when we talk about scoring, that it's okay to have a good round followed by a a quote-unquote bad round. That is part of the game. I think there are ways you can tighten that scoring dispersion a bit, but it's always going to be there. It's there for the best golfers in the world. So I think if you're at peace with that and walk onto the course accepting both outcomes and, and you know doing many of the things that Adam and I want you to do, that will get you in a better place. And then also understanding the inherent inconsistency that just is what ball striking is, that the ball can end up in so many different places and understanding that you don't have complete control of that golf ball. I know all of you know that to some level, but it really speaks to the golfer who, you know, hits a great shot where they want to on the green and then the next tee they pump one out of bounds and they go crazy i mean that happened to me the other day i pulled a tee shot really badly out of bounds I mean, it was just a really dreadful golf swing and i just reteed it and i was like that just happened and i'm just gonna have to move on i think the old me would have probably lost his mind but just embracing or accepting maybe is the right word that there is always an inherent inconsistency to outcomes in terms of where your shots show up, no matter how good of a ball striker you become. Those are my main two closing points there. Awesome. Should we finish up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. All right, John, where can people find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com. Sign up for our newsletter, check out our deals, and check out our forum too. And appreciate everyone listening. Adam? AdamYoungGolf.com, free articles, Awesome paid content, if I do say so myself. (laughs) And you can get the book on Amazon as well. I talk about a lot of these things. It's easy. I think this stuff is easier to digest in written form because you can kind of read a sentence then put the book down and kind of visualize it and digest it better. But hopefully this podcast has given you a primer for it. I do have articles as well. If you type into Google model for consistency, Adam Young Golf, I've got four articles that talks about the kind of four stages that I talked about just a minute ago. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.